0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Last week, the Supreme Court decided Brnovich versus Democratic National Committee, upholding two Arizona voting requirements in a major voting rights ruling. Joining us to discuss that decision and its ramifications for the meaning of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act are two of America's leading experts on voting rights and the Constitution who will cast much light on this important question. Ilya Shapiro is a vice president of the Cato Institute, director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies and publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He's the author of Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations, and the Politics of America's Highest Court, Ilya, it is wonderful to have you back on the
1: show. Great to be back with you, Jeff.
0: And Rick Hassan is Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine. In 2020, he served as a CNN election law analyst. He's the author of Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy, and the author of the leading election blog. Rick, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. It's always good to be with you. Friends, we're here to discuss the meaning of section two of the Voting Rights Act. It's one of the most complicated sections to teach and the Supreme Court has just disagreed vigorously about its meaning. Uh, Before we jump into the technicalities of the text, let's step back and begin with the question we usually end with. Um, Rick, why is this case important and why should we the people listeners care about it?
2: So this is an important case because this was the first time that the Supreme Court interpreted what Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act means outside the context of of redistricting. In the redistricting context, when every 10 years states draw new district lines to um, comply with the various constitutional principles, one of the things they have to do is also... make sure that minority voters are given certain opportunities to elect candidates of their choice in districts. And the Supreme Court since the 1986 case of Thornburg versus Jingles uh, has set forth a, kind of a multi-part test to know when Section 2 is violated. But until the Burnovich decision, which we got at the uh, end of the Supreme Court's term, we never heard from the Supreme Court as to how Section 2 applies to protect minority voters outside the context of redistricting. Uh, as you said, the majority and dissent have strong disagreements about the meaning of section two. And this is going to have very large ramifications for challenges to laws that uh, some minority plaintiffs argue make it harder for them to register and to vote. And so now one of the major tools that plaintiffs have hoped they would be able to use to attack laws that they claim make it harder to register and vote is, uh, I would say, essentially gone.
0: Uh, So Ilya, Rick just said that the court had previously interpreted Section 2 to apply to so-called vote dilution claims that arose out of redistricting cases, but this was the first time it applied Section 2 to voting restriction uh, claims that could affect voting requirements in the future. Why do you think that the case is important and why should our listeners care about it?
1: Well, it's important for the reason that Cato and I filed a brief in this case, and we actually filed in support of neither side. We simply urge the court to give much needed clarity in this area because what we've seen lately uh, with a polarization uh, politically and within each party and also a decline in, in uh, trust in our institutions is that there's an increase in uh, election litigation, including section two uh, vote denial claims. And uh, The Supreme Court really needed to set out a basic framework. Otherwise, there'd be a, a, a continuation or a growth in the Lawyer Full Employment Act with any change in voting rules, drawing a legal challenge and perhaps upheld one year only to be struck down the next, depending on Um, lots of uh, potentially uh, different things. And so to me, this case, and I think Rick agrees with this, was about much more than the two particular Arizona provisions at issue, which after all are commonplace uh, around the country, requiring you to vote in your own precinct, and uh, preventing uh, uh, ballot harvesting or collecting uh, of uh, early or mailed ballots by those other than family members, caregivers, uh, postmen, and, and election uh, officials. But much more important than those two provisions, whether in Arizona or elsewhere, is the framework. Uh, for the Supreme Court to set out. And I had urged uh, uh, the court to set a bright line rule. It didn't quite do that, although uh, a few of the factors that Justice Alito said in his uh, mentioned in his uh, uh, majority opinion do uh, tend to, uh, I, I think uh, we'll get into this, uh, set a, a pretty high bar and effectively work as a bright line for Section Two claims.
0: Thank you very much for that. And we'll look forward to discussing your proposed bright line and the court's ruling. In a moment, but let's begin, as they say, with the text. And it's so important to begin with the text because the text is hotly contested and the majority and dissent disagree strongly about what it means. So I'm going to read the text. And we, the people listeners, this is a good time for you to just get out the opinion and read the text yourself uh, so that you can decide what it means. So section two has two interlocking parts. Uh, Subsection A says, no voting qualification or prerequisite to voting or standard practice or procedure shall be imposed or applied by any state or political subdivision in a manner which results in a denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen of the United States to vote on account of race or color. And then section B tells the court how to apply that bar. Those are Justice Kagan's uh, words. Um, uh, A violation of section A is established if Based on the totality of circumstances, it is shown that the political processes leading to nomination or election in the state or political subdivision are not equally open to participation by members of a given race in that those members have less opportunity than other members of the electorate to participate in the political processes and to elect representatives of their choice. Rick, those words came against a very specific backdrop. They were designed to overturn the Supreme Court's 1980 decision in the Mobile case, which said that you had to prove discriminatory intent in order to establish a Section 2 violation. Instead, Congress wanted to say that laws that had a discriminatory impact could violate Section 2. They borrowed that language from a case called White versus Register, that language about not being equally open to uh, other members of the electorate to participate. But it's hotly contested about what the words mean and whether they suggest that any practices that have discriminatory impact can be challenged or something short of that. So I've read the language and I've given a bit of the background. Please tell us, Rick Hassan, what was the background and what was Congress trying to achieve when it passed those words?
2: Right. So I think we want to start with 1965 Voting Rights Act. That's when the act first passed. And um, one of the major provisions of the act was what's come to be known as preclearance or section five of the act. And I I think it's important to understand this backdrop before we go forward to talking about where we are today. So uh, among the most important provisions was this idea that uh, if a jurisdiction had a history of racial discrimination in voting, it couldn't make a change to its voting rules uh, without getting federal approval uh, from either a three-judge court in Washington, D.C., or the Department of Justice, in order to get approval, the jurisdiction would have to show uh, that the, the change in law that they wanted to make wouldn't make protected uh, minority voters worse off. This is sometimes referred to as the retrogression principle. Um, and the reason that, co- that Congress had put that in the 1965 Voting Rights Act is uh, that the um, uh, The Department of Justice would go down and they'd sue Southern states for engaging in racially discriminatory voting practices like poll taxes, like literacy tests or or whatever. They'd win their case. And then the uh, you'd get the um, jurisdiction just enacting a new restriction after DOJ left. And so this idea was we could prevent backsliding by putting the onus on these jurisdictions to um, make their um, uh, get approval before they make any of their changes. And so that helped, Uh, it was prevented backsliding, but it didn't help enough. And so um, for example, if a jurisdiction had a rule that was discriminatory and it's been on the books for a long time, it wouldn't be making a change. And so it wouldn't be subject to preclearance. And so let's talk about city of Mobile versus Bolden. Uh, In uh, uh, New Orleans, uh, Louisiana, uh, they were electing representatives for um, uh, the city. And uh, the representatives, some of them were elected at large. So everyone in the city got to vote. And imagine a city that is 60 percent white and 40 percent African-American and all the whites prefer one set of candidates and all the African-Americans prefer another set of candidates. Uh, In that kind of system, if there's racially polarized voting uh, where whites prefer one set of candidates, African-Americans prefer others and you vote at large, everyone gets to vote, then whites control the entire city council. And so, does it violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, a different part of the Voting Rights Act, to um, not require the creation of districts so minority voters can have a chance to elect representatives of their choice? And some Supreme Court decisions before the 1980 City of Mobile versus Bolton case, including White versus Register, which you mentioned. Um, said, yeah, it could be a violation. If you look at a bunch of different factors, sometimes called the totality of the circumstances, it could be discriminatory. But in City of Mobile versus Bolden, the court said, we read Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act as not reaching this question, that it only would um, make uh, at-large voting illegal if a jurisdiction adopted it with the intent of discriminating against minority voters. And in 1982, in response to City of Mobile versus Bolden, uh, Congress, in dialogue with the Supreme Court, said, No, you've got Section 2 wrong. It's enough to prove a discriminatory effect, not just a discriminatory intent, right? And so, um, with Thornburg versus Jingles and in interpreting the revised Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, said in 1986, was if you could meet certain requirements, which we don't have to get into here, then you could force a jurisdiction to draw districts in which minority voters would have a chance to elect representatives of their choice. And this was a caused a dramatic change in representation. We, were, uh, we, we now have many more African-American preferred candidates for state and local and federal office. And so it was remarkably successful in achieving that. And so section two said, in its revised form in 1982, it's enough to prove results or discriminatory effect. And so what was at issue in Brnovich as we get up to there is what does it mean to have a discriminatory effect in the context of um, uh, not a a, a vote dilution case or a case, but a vote denial case. And so the question, for example, suppose that um, African-American voters uh, use a particular method of voting uh, more commonly, than another method. So let's talk about um, in some places, African-American voters do Sunday drives to get people to vote right after church, souls to the polls. And let's say that a jurisdiction, knowing that African-American voters um, vote in high numbers uh, on Sundays and they tend to vote for Democrats, let's say that a Republican legislature passes a law that says no more Sunday voting. The question would be, is that a violation of section two? And my answer before Brnovich was surely yes. And my answer after Brnovich is almost certainly no. Ilya, Rick just went through a lot of helpful history. I'd like you to review the same
0: history. And we heard Rick tell us that in the White versus Register case, which was 1973, the court said that vote dilution plaintiffs uh, had to show that the political processes leading to nomination and election were not equally open to participation by the group in question, Dash, that its members had less opportunity than did other residents in the district to participate in the political process and to elect legislators of their choice. We heard Rick say that in the Mobile case, the court said you had to prove discriminatory intent, and we heard him say that Congress wanted to reverse that requirement in Section 2 of the Amended Voting Rights Act and resurrect the white versus register test. Does that mean that all practices that had discriminatory effects could be challenged? Or did Congress um, in the 82 amendments intend to uh, allow something less than that?
1: The short answer is no. And that's why I'll just take up the part where I want to clarify or correct, uh, depending how you see it, something that Rick said. And that's that the... uh, the eventual legislation that Congress passed, the, the Section 2 Amendment, did not simply say uh, discriminatory effect or, as now we might say more often, disparate impact. Um, th- that's not what it said. Uh, it that, that, that kind of uh, understanding uh, met with stiff resistance uh, in the Senate. And uh, there was compromise language to require uh, consideration of the totality of the circumstances and that, uh, you know, the, the equally open language that that you just read in which um, Justice Alito started his majority opinion in the Brnovich case uh, with. And, and that requires a consideration, as, as I said, of, of the totality of the circumstances. It's not... Um, you know, I, I don't know whether uh, an anti-souls to the polls, you know, Sunday voting that's uh, thinly veiled to to stop uh, uh, African-American post-church vote goers. I don't know whether that would survive uh, or not. Um, but the the idea is uh, you look at whether, you know, the factors, I don't know whether you want to, Jeff, get into uh, Alito's actual majority opinion here. But the, the, the point is that minute or not statistically significant disparities um, don't, you know, don't make a particular rule suspect. You have to look at um, how the state sets out its rules altogether. Um, You know, there's not a clear time, place or manner, uh, you know, guideline here. Um, uh, But uh, it's not merely importing the Section 5 anti-retrogression test or the, the redistricting vote dilution tests uh, under section two here, it's much more of a, you know, you don't have to prove intent, uh, but you do have to have something more than, um, some, you know, mere, um, you know, minor, uh, uh, uh disparate impact, uh, altogether. And that's, that's, you know, goes to the difference between the analysis of the majority and the, uh, and the dissent in Brnovich.
0: Thank you for that. Rick, let's just stay with what Congress intended and debated in, in 1982. Um, there is language for swearing any desire to require proportional representation. And Justice Alito and Justice Kagan disagree about uh, whether that exception um, limits the discriminatory effects uh, test and in, in what ways. So um, d- do you believe that Congress was attempting in 1982 to forbid, as Justice Kagan said, all voting practices that make it harder for minorities uh, to vote? Uh, or does the text um, and the legislative history suggest a more limited principle, as Justice Alito suggests?
2: Jeff, let me say that um, I can't remember being as angry in reading an opinion and thinking it is disingenuous uh, since the Shelby County case, which is the case in 2013 where the Supreme Court effectively killed off Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. This is a an embarrassingly terrible opinion. And, and this is not, if you've listened to me on this uh, program before, I don't use that language lightly. I don't think I've described any other uh, cases uh, in this way. Um, you said at the opening of today's program that it's important to start with the text and the history. And this opinion by Justice Alito mangles both. Not only does uh, the... Um, text talk about equality. It talks about minority voters having less opportunity, that's right there in the text, than others to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. Congress passed this law trying to shake things up. It wanted, for example, the creation of these majority-minority districts in places like New Orleans with their racially polarized voting and essentially no representation for African-American voters. Justice Alito views this as radical, but it was radical. That was Congress's intent. Congress intended to break things up. And there was no evidence And Justice Kagan, uh, ha- having studied the, uh, the history of, of, the, of Section 2's uh, passage uh, in, in some depth, Justice Kagan has much better for the argument that uh, Congress was not debating how radical to make this law. In fact, there was an aide to Ronald Reagan, who was working very hard to water down what Section 2 was going to do because he saw how radical Section 2 was meant to be by Congress, and he failed in getting Congress to water it down. That person's name, the point person on this, was John Roberts. John Roberts, now the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, achieved in Brnovich what he couldn't achieve in 1982 politically, which is to water this law down and make it into nothing. Let me say one more thing about what the court did in Brnovich. Ordinarily, you start with the text, you look at um, the history, and you put forward a test as to how to implement that history. That's exactly how to implement that text uh, as um, reflected in the history of its drafting. That's exactly what the Supreme Court did in Thornburg versus Jingles. By coming up with a three-part test for figuring out when there is vote dilution, followed by a totality of the circumstances test, which was drawn from a Senate report on uh, Section 2's uh, uh, section, uh, um, amendment in 1982, which itself was drawn from White versus Register, from the Supreme Court itself in setting forth the standards. Justice Alito doesn't do that in the Brnovich case. Instead, he can't even name a test He instead says, well, we've never looked at Section 2 before in this context. Let me give you some guideposts. And I'm going to mention the five factors because we're going to have to get into this. This is what he said were the five factors that you should maybe look at in particular cases. The magnitude of the voting burden imposed by the practice, the degree to which the practice was widespread in 1982, the size of the racial disparity caused by the practice, the ease of voting under the state's whole electoral system and the strength of the state's interests underlying the practice. As Justice Kagan says in the dissent, this is just, this is made up law. This is made up out of whole cloth. The idea that we're now going to use 1982 as our baseline and the idea that we're not going to look at a practice like banning souls to the polls and ask whether that means minority voters have less opportunity than others to participate in the political process. So long as a, there are other electoral opportunities for minority voters. And this is, mangling section two beyond recognition. This is the worst form of statutory interpretation. And if I were a justice like Justice Gorsuch, who professes uh, allegiance to textual interpretation, this is not supported by the text. This is just wholly made up law that is intended to put roadblock after roadblock for plaintiffs who wish to use section two to bring a vote denial claim.
0: You know, you just heard Rick's uh, strong words um, and you read Justice Kagan's strong words. Both of them claim that the majority was making up law, imposing extra textual requirements in order to narrow uh, Congress's intent to uh, agree or disagree.
1: Yeah, I think Rick and I are on opposite sides of the looking glass because I think Justice Kagan's opinion was disingenuous. I mean, I generally respect Justice Kagan a whole lot. I think uh, her opinions are clear. The questions she asked at oral argument go precisely to the issue that uh, any given case turns on. Uh, but here, she essentially tries to make this Shelby County redux. She essentially tries to import uh, disparate impact from other uh, statutes, other understandings. And she uh, reads the 1982 Section 2 uh, amendment to, to say things that uh, that it doesn't. And indeed, it's not surprising. If I were Justice Gorsuch uh, to read the text of, 19, of, of, of Section 2 uh, based on uh, what the words in it say, um, and to accept the practices that were in place in 1982. I don't think there's a constitutional or a voting rights act right to any early voting, for example, or to no excuse absentee voting. And I don't think that if you take those away, um, that that would be some sort of racial disenfranchisement, let alone a violation of section two, however construed. I mean, we've expanded our, uh, states, different states in different ways have expanded their, their voting, uh, uh, rules and, and uh, the, the ability to vote, the opportunities to vote for everyone, uh, by leaps and bounds. About in the last twenty years, Bush v. Gore was the real catalyst uh, uh, for this. Uh, but you know that may or may not be a, a, a good thing. We can debate that's a matter of policy or technical administration uh, of election law. But you know I don't blame New York or Delaware for having many many fewer opportunities to vote than Georgia or Iowa or Texas. I don't think that means they necessarily violate uh, section two because of that um, or that they are bad to voters uh, because of that. I mean, the incompetent uh, handling of elections in New York City that re- we recently saw are probably uh, bad for voting. But anyway, getting back to the the actual debate between the majority and dissent, uh, this is not about uh, uh, letting in uh, racial discrimination through the back door. This is not about eviscerating section two. You know, Shelby County, we can debate that separately. I think it was correct simply because uh, the, the extraordinary conditions on the ground in the Jim Crow South uh, were gone or at least uh, were applied in, in different ways. And the, uh, the, the coverage formula uh, did not match the realities uh, in 2006 that it had in 1972, etc. Uh, but that's not this case. This case is about the uh, equal opportunity to vote. And they're simply to do that, to, to make out and an, a, a claim for race-based vote denial, the court is saying here, you have to show race-based vote denial. It's as simple as that.
0: Rick, you mentioned the Jingles case, and uh, I, I find it a complicated case to teach because I always have to go back and look at the factors, but I'm, I'm now going to read them to, to remind myself. And uh, uh, under Jingles, the uh, plaintiffs have to show three preconditions before they can raise a vote dilution claim under Section 2. First, the racial or language minority group is sufficiently large and geographically compact to constitute a majority in a single-member district. Second, the group is politically cohesive, meaning its members tend to vote similarly. And third, the majority votes sufficiently as a block to enable it usually to defeat the minority's preferred candidates. If those three preconditions are met, then the plaintiffs have to show using Factors that the Senate noted in passing the 1982 amendments, that under the totality of the circumstances, a redistricting plan diminishes the ability of a minority group to elect representatives of their choice. And then there are these nine Senate factors, uh, some of which, uh, as Justice Alito noted, are are relevant to uh, voting claims that don't involve vote dilution and others aren't, but they include the history of official discrimination in the jurisdiction that affects the right to vote, the degree to which voting is racially polarized, uh, and uh, the extent to which minorities are discriminated against in socioeconomic areas, such as education, employment, and health. Rick, to what degree are these Senate factors, which was obviously part of the debate over the 1982 amendments, relevant to deciding cases that don't involve vote dilution, which was the Senate's focus, but instead, other fine kinds of restriction on the right to vote? And, and to what degree does the, does this uh, legislative history impact your view that Justice Kagan, rather than the majority, had it
2: right? So one thing uh, I think to start is uh, that the threshold factors and jingles, the ones you mentioned about racially polarized voting and the, minor- the majority usually being able to defeat the minority's preferred candidates, those, I think everyone agrees, don't have direct application to vote denial cases, you know, where you make it, harder to register or to vote, but the totality of the circumstances do seem to be relevant. And in fact, if you look at uh, every court decision since uh, that, before Bernovich that had tried to figure out what section two means in the vote denial case, they did look at those totality of the circumstances factors and there had, the lower courts had developed a number of tests, um, all of which were rejected by um, the majority in favor of these ad hoc standards that the court came up with. So just to give you uh, an example of how ad hoc this is, um, Justice uh, Alito talks about the practice in 1982 um, as the standard. It has to be more than the usual burdens of voting as understood in 1982. Why does that become the standard? Did Congress think that the law was going to just Uh, stop evolving, and that voting practices weren't going to change after 1982, there's nothing to suggest that. Or to take another factor, the strength of the state's interests underlying the practice. Justice Alito, in multiple points in the opinion, talks about the specter of voter fraud as though it is a major problem in the United States. And we know that it is a minor problem in the United States. Arizona had no instances of fraud connected to these practices. And so the upshot is under Justice Alito's test, plaintiffs have a very high burden. They have to show that something is more than the usual burdens of voting, more than the usual burdens of voting as compared to um, what the law was in 1982 when early voting and absentee voting uh, was uh, rare and voter registration was onerous. And they have to show as a whole that there is not equal opportunity to vote and the state doesn't have to come forward with any evidence that it's laws actually necessary to support its interests. It can just assert an interest in voter fraud. On the very same day that the Supreme court decided the Burnovich case, it decided a case called Americans for prosperity foundation versus Bonta. And in that case, it was totally flipped. The state has to come forward with lots and lots of evidence that it's disclosure law is required to um, enforce its important law, law enforcement interests, but plaintiffs don't have to come forward with any evidence of a chill to support their claim that the, that the law um, is violating their First Amendment rights. And w- what explains the difference in these two cases? Why does the state get a pass in one case and not the other, it's the conservative ideology of the justices on the Supreme Court. There's no way to understand this but as a naked power grab by the Supreme Court. As I said, I'm still angry a week after the decision as we're recording this. I just find these opinions to not reflect anything like the totality of the circumstances test, not to reflect anything like either what the text of section uh, two says or what the legislative history requires or how lower courts have construed the law. And I'll I'll give one final example. The United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, which I consider to be one of the most conservative courts in the country, heard a challenge to Texas's very strict voter ID law on banc. That is the entire Fifth Circuit heard it. And the Fifth Circuit found that this very strict voter ID law violated section two. Then Texas amended its law in response to the lawsuit, eased up the burdens, provided ways that voters who have difficulty getting voter ID could still vote, and the Fifth Circuit upheld the law. That's what Section Two was meant to do. It was meant to say that in egregious cases, there should be found to be a violation of Section Two for vote denial claims. But now after this opinion, I think that that Texas voter ID decision would have come out the other way. And it's hard for me to imagine any current voting restriction violating section two. Congress didn't intend to pass a law that would have no effect in the vote denial context. Thank
0: you so much for that,
2: Ilya. Your response, of course, and, and, and
0: more, more broadly, I understand that you and Rick and others may disagree about the precise factors to be applied, but when I used to teach section two, the, the common wisdom was that Congress was trying to create a results test which prohibits any voting law that has a discriminatory effect, regardless of whether it was motivated by discriminatory intent. Uh, is, is that wrong, that Congress was trying to create a results test? And, and are we uh, just disagreeing about exactly how to prove uh, discriminatory uh, results? Or is there something else in the text or legislative history that, that suggests exactly what kind of discriminatory results Congress was trying to prohibit?
1: Well there has to be a de minimis or common sense filter on what a uh, an effects test is and I don't I'm not you know th- I don't think it's the same as disparate impact in other statutes but, but regardless in voting there are kind of what uh, Justice Stevens in the Crawford case uh, involving voter ID called the usual burdens of voting so you have to go somewhere or you have to register now we've made it a lot easier with uh, more widespread, no excuse, absentee or mailed uh, ballots. But there are certain burdens. You don't have a, a constitutional right to uh, for the government to infer how you want to vote by your brainwaves or to uh, to text your vote in or, or, or click on a website or, or whatever the easiest technological way conceivable could be at any given time. Uh, and so uh, things like you have to vote uh, during certain hours or... You know, if you want to consolidate early voting days or whatever, those kinds of time, place, manner uh, rules are fine. Souls to the polls would be problematic, probably, because it's it's widespread. Seen that uh, you know that's uh, uh, it it, it looks uh, facially neutral, but there would be a pretext of trying to reduce uh, racial minority voting or or something like that. But in the general circumstance, I think it's patronizing to say that. Uh, you know, uh, whites are better than racial minorities at figuring out where to vote or how to get a voter ID. And so the rules, and we've seen this litigation again and again, is, you know, for voter ID, uh, you, you can require it, most people support it overwhelmingly, including Democrats, including members of racial minorities, you know, progressive elites don't, but they're the only ones. Uh, and uh, as long as states don't make it overly hard to get the actual ID, that will survive. And similarly, with, you know, other sorts of commonplace uh, 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 rules that states have great leeway to put in, so long as, again, it's not just, you know, it doesn't fail the constitutional smell test. The, come on, this is a a, a pretext for going after, uh, you know, some disfavored group.
0: Rick, Justice Kagan says, I'm not talking about small impacts de minimis requirements. And she also says uh, Section 2 doesn't demand equal outcomes if members of different races have the same opportunity to vote but go to the ballot at different rates. That's their preference. But, she says, if a law produces different voting opportunities across races, if it establishes rules and conditions of political participation that are less favorable or advantageous for one racial group than for others, then section two kicks in. It applies, in short, whenever the law makes it harder for citizens of one race than of others to cast a vote. I, I, I think you uh, believe that that's supported by the text and history of Section Two. Tell us why.
2: Well, uh, I'm looking at the opinion, uh, and there's a part in the dissent from uh, Justice Kagan, where she talks about Justice Scalia, who was uh, you know, not always a friend to the Voting Rights Act, where he said that um, he wrote in a case called Chisholm versus Romer, um, suppose that a county passed a law limiting voter registration to only three hours, one day a week. And suppose the policy makes it more difficult for blacks to register than for whites, say, because the jobs African-Americans disproportionately hold make it harder for them to take time off in that window. Those are the sociological factors that um, and education factors that you mentioned in the totality of the circumstances test. Justice Scalia had concluded that if that were the case, then those voters would have less opportunity to participate in the political process than whites. And Section 2 would therefore be violated. Common sense, textual interpretation of the law. And yet the majority seems to say, no, Justice Scalia was wrong there. That's not what Section 2 requires. You've got to look at the entire system as a whole. You've got to compare what the registration rules were in the 1980s. Uh, the state can come forward with uh, interests and not support them like uh, efficiency. Uh, so I think that you know what you have in Justice Alito's opinion is just a roadmap for lower courts to find no Section 2 violation and for appellate courts, if more liberal district court judges find some kind of violation, uh, to overturn that. The touchstone of this law should be less opportunity than others. You read the part from Justice Kagan's dissent. That less opportunity than others, that disparate impact, is what the majority rejects. But that should be the touchstone for any textual analysis as Justice Scalia's opinion, I, uh, Justice Scalia's uh, earlier opinion in uh, Chisholm versus Romer, I think so nicely illustrated. Ilya, why,
0: why shouldn't uh, that language, having less opportunity than other groups to participate, that is disparate impact, be the touchstone? And then, uh, since Congress obviously didn't think clearly about the vote denial as opposed to vote dilution claims. Uh, Why not come up with a simple, clear test? You recommended a test. Share with our listeners what uh, test you recommended and why you believe that Justice Alito's factors broadly satisfy that need for a clear test and, and are consistent with the text of the statute.
1: I actually didn't recommend a test. I just said there should be a test so that there's clarity going forward and states aren't constantly in flux with with their election uh, rules. But I think uh, for for Rick's hypothetical, the the only three hours of, of registration when overwhelmingly that... It's uh, racial minorities that are that are working then, or make it harder to register. And registration, of course, is a a bottleneck. Is it's uh, you know even if you look at totality of circumstances of when and how you can vote, if you're not registered, you can't vote. Well, that seems like uh, failing uh, Justice Scalia's factors. Um, So I, I don't think this precludes you know, egregious situations where, as I said, there can be no possible explanation for a given rule uh, other than that uh, uh, it's it's targeted at uh, uh, disfavored uh, groups based on on race. And so I think that this, uh, you know, this this multifactor test, this kind of totality of the circumstances, even though I don't like them, I wish it were a little bit uh, sharper, but it certainly allows for, you know, egregious rules that fail the smell test, uh, as I said. Uh, but, uh, you know, most rules in most states don't do things like that. And maybe the Texas voter ID was, maybe it wasn't. You know, judges can debate that. There are going to be gray areas, certainly. Um, but, uh, you know, the the vote, I don't think equal opportunity is synonymous with, with disparate impact. Uh, I don't think it was um, the way that the law is enacted. And I don't think, you know, to the extent legislative history even matters, I don't think it supports it.
0: Thanks for that. Uh Rick, how significant does the disparity need to be for it to violate Section 2? And is it fair to say that Congress didn't think squarely about how Section 2 might apply to vote denial cases and therefore some kind of uh, test is necessary for the court to construe or or,
2: or not? Well, I think it goes uh, without saying that there needs to be a judicial gloss on this language because— you read the statute at the beginning and I I was uh, very proud of you for getting all the way to the end of it without falling asleep because it's hard to hear statutory language, Uh, but it's, it's opaque. And so it requires interpretation. Uh, Congress, one thing we know is that uh, Congress uh, when it passes laws, doesn't think about every possible permutation. Uh, And of course it can't foresee everything that's going to happen in the future. I mean, you could talk about uh, the communications decency act of 1996 Uh, You know that regulates the internet, and no one could foresee where social media was going to go in 2021. And so, of course, we have to take statutory language and apply it to new circumstances. And there are different uh, thoughts of of interpretation as to how uh, that should be done. Uh, But I think the core, which Justice Kagan says in her dissent, the core is: can you show, as a threshold, not as the not as the total test, can you show? a statistically significant disparate impact, that is, and she drops a footnote talking about the other instances in which the Supreme Court has relied on statistical disparities as as kind of a first cut. Can you show that this law is having a disparate effect, a statistically significant disparate effect? I tend to think that um, generally speaking, third party ballot collection laws probably don't have that effect and they could be justified by an interest in preventing voter fraud since we actually have had cases of third party ballot collections leading to fraud. But yet Justice Kagan makes a really uh, compelling case that in the particular context of Arizona, where only 17% of Native American uh, voters, uh, many of whom are on uh, reservations, have the opportunity to, 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 to have easy access to a mailbox because they're living in these remote areas, that there it could be a big burden, and you could statistically show that kind of burden. And so the the majority doesn't seem to see that as the touchstone, and in fact, rejects that as the touchstone, instead coming up with this amorphous test. I really think that um, if Justice Kagan's test were adopted, a majority of Section 2 cases would still fail it's a high burden. And she says it's a high burden. It's not meant to get to minor disparities or mere inconveniences. But for egregious laws that are passed without the state having a real um, interest, those laws should not pass. And and that reminds me of of a really important point about the totality of the circumstances. One of the totality of circumstances recognized in the Senate report coming out of the Supreme Court's decision in white versus register in other cases, is the tenuousness of the state's justification. That is, as Justice Kagan explains in her dissent, there are instances throughout history of laws that look like they're neutral on their face, but are really intended to make it harder to register and vote. But proving intentional discrimination is really hard. And so one way to get at that through the back door is to ask, is the state Passing a law and asserting its interest in passing law, doing it with actual evidence that the law is necessary to to reach its goals? Or is it tenuous? Is it just an excuse to discriminate? If that's what's going on, if it's tenuous, that should be a big thumb on the scale against the law. And in fact, Justice Alito reverses that and puts the thumb on the scale favoring the state as it comes up with its tenuous excuses for passing laws that suppress the vote.
0: Ilya, Rick just stated a really simple test. Can you show this law is having a statistically significant disparate impact? And Justice Kagan offered a similar test. And both of them uh, are saying this is broadly what Congress was trying to do in 1982. It was rejecting an intent requirement and trying to prohibit uh, disparate impact. And the test should be, is is the impact statistically significant? Do you believe that's a plausible reading of the text and purpose or not?
1: I think a statistically significant uh, impact would be one of Alito's factors as well. I think he he mentioned that the size of the uh, disparities in the rules effect on members of different racial or ethnic groups. And so there could be sort of a, a burden shifting at a certain point. If, um, if a plaintiff uh, shows that there's such a big, uh, effect like with Rick's hypothetical of the three hour rule or an anti souls to the polls type of rule, neutral, just cutting back on Sunday voting, what have you. Um, I think in effect, in practice, how courts would look at that is to shift the burden and look at what the state's justification is. Um, because the state's justification isn't always simply anti-fraud. And I agree with Rick that there's not that much fraud, but it exists in certain contexts, more, much more through mail than through, uh, in person, uh, voting, um, but the greater state interest is to maintain or increase the confidence of the electorate in the legitimacy of the government that the election produces, or the integrity of the of the balloting. I think we can uh, we can all uh, agree on that. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't think there should be a Section Five style test where every state change to an electoral law has to be run by a court or or the Justice Department or anyone else. Uh, but uh, I think, in effect, uh, even under J- Justice Alito's, you know, multi-factor uh, totality of the circumstances test, if you show a, you know, a significant uh, uh, disparate impact, and that's going to raise some questions. What really is going on here? Um, and 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 courts will uh, delve into that. But but again. Um, there's a big difference between, you know, you can only register for three hours on a given workday or whatever or or no Sunday voting versus we're cutting back early voting from, you know, 25 days to 13 or we're making it nine to seven instead of eight to six or, or whatever. The changes that tend to be debated with such uh, uh, acrimony uh, of late. Many thanks for that, uh,
0: Rick. Could Congress overturn this Brnovich decision through a new statute if the votes were there, which we know from uh, current reality uh, is not the case? Um, Or is there language in the opinion suggesting that uh, a race-conscious voting rights act might itself be
2: unconstitutional? That's a great question. Um, Let me just first start by saying that uh, I was heartened to hear some of what Ilya said about how he reads the Supreme Court's opinion. But I'm much more in terms of what would violate Section Two, but I'm much I'm much more pessimistic that this is what the court actually meant. You know, so now we're not debating what Section Two means; we're debating what the court meant in Bernovich. And I sure hope that Ilya's right and I'm wrong on this point, but I'm not confident of that. Could Congress revise uh, the Voting Rights Act to adopt Justice Kagan's dissent? And I think the answer to that question is. Uh, First, politically, it would be very difficult, even though in 2006, Congress passed a renewed and strengthened Voting Rights Act uh, by a vote of 98 to 0 in the United States Senate. Uh, Times have changed, and this has now become a much more politically polarized issue where uh, very few Republican members of Congress are supporting a uh, a revised Voting Rights Act at all, uh, uh, much less one that would... Change the Bernovich decision. So I think politically, there's a huge question about whether something could pass. But let's suppose that it could pass. Would the Supreme Court find it to be unconstitutional? There is language in the opinion. It's on page 25 of the slip opinion, which you can find on the Supreme Court's uh, website, um, where uh, uh, in the major 20, page 25 in the majority opinion, uh, where um, Justice Alito is talking about uh, the um, Standard that Justice Kagan uh, has adopted this uh, disparate impact standard, and he suggests that such a standard uh, would be a um, uh, he calls it a, a, a radical test. And he says, uh, I want to get the exact uh, language for you here in the opinion. Um, he says that um, uh, that it would that, that that Justice Kagan's alternative would quote deprive the states of their authority to establish non-discriminatory voting rules. And so I think if Congress adopted a disparate impact test, like Justice Kagan suggests, that a court could uh, do a kind of Shelby County 2, you're depriving states of their sovereignty. Here, not equal sovereignty, because it's not singling out states um, with a coverage formula. But you're depriving states of their sovereignty. You're upsetting the federal balance, which makes me think that one way to try to uh, insulate a revised Section 2 from a constitutional challenge might be for the court to apply this new Section 2 only to federal elections, because Congress has broader powers under federal elections. In Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution, Congress has the power to make or alter uh, the uh, laws for a federal elections set by the states, whereas the power to... Uh, regulate elections generally to prevent race discrimination comes from enforcement of the 14th and 15th Amendments. 14th Amendments Equal Protection Clause, 15th Amendments uh, Prohibition on Discrimination on the Basis of Race. So uh, I think, uh, you know, it's not clear if Congress could enact Justice Kagan's dissent as Section 2. It would be a a better chance if it were applied only to federal elections. Ilya, do you
0: believe that Congress could enact Justice Kagan's dissent, or do you think that that would violate the Constitution?
1: Well, it could certainly change and amend Section 2 to have an explicit uh, disparate impact standard of, of some kind. Uh, it could change it in other ways. It could enact a new, uh, uh, for that matter, um, coverage formula for uh, to, to, to renew Section 5. That's being debated in the John Lewis Act now. I'm, I, with Justice Thomas, think that there's no longer any constitutional justification for the uh, extraordinary subversion of our federalist regime to have the federal government act as a um, trustee of state elections uh, any further, uh, unlike uh, for Section 2 or Section 3, which are fully justified, but that's getting into the weeds uh, some. But I'd like to thank Rick for pointing us to uh, page 25 of the slip opinion, because this goes to two uh, earlier points that we've been discussing. One is uh, Justice Kagan's accusation that Justice Alito considers Section 2 to be a radical uh, piece of legislation. He doesn't say that. He says the dissent, Justice Kagan's dissent, is 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 radical, and that's partly why I think Kagan's being disingenuous. But also, he talks about this issue of statistical significance and uh, disparate impact. Um, uh, footnote seventeen. Uh, he says we do not think Section two is so procrustean as to simply uh, make any statistically significant disparity into uh, a violation. Um, uh, instead. Uh, whatever might be standard in other contexts, we have explained that Section 2's focus on equal openness and equal opportunity does not impose a standard disparate impact regime. But it opens the conversation, as I alluded. So, Rick, I don't think you need to be so pessimistic about Justice Alito. I think what I described is very much in line with what his opinion said. But, of course, that's what lower courts are going to have to be interpreting.
0: Uh, Rick, Justice Kagan says that the majority has uh, eviscerated the power of Section 2 and that many... Discriminatory uh, voter practices uh, can no longer be challenged, even though she thinks they should be because they have discriminatory impact. Tell us what those practices are and what the practical effects of the Brnovich decision will be.
2: So I, I think that um, we need to understand uh, the context of um, this, this opinion coming at this time in American history. And I, I think the dissent acknowledges it, but the uh, majority ignores it. We just went through a very difficult contested election where um, President Trump made wildly unsubstantiated claims of voter fraud, claimed the election was stolen, tried to interfere with the outcome of the election by uh, calling election officials and asking them to change vote totals. I mean, it's mind boggling. We had a, a, um, an insurrection in the United States Capitol where people stormed the Capitol and tried to stop the counting of the electoral college votes. Just astounding. And in response to this, rather than a bipartisan commission that comes together to try to figure out how do we stop this and how do we stop this scourge of lying about election integrity, instead Republican legislatures are considering hundreds of bills to make it harder to register and to vote we're seeing a new wave of voter suppression. And for many years, I resisted calling it voter suppression because I thought that the debate over voter fraud versus voter suppression was a good faith debate. I no longer think that is true. These laws are being put in place either to please the Trumpian base of the Republican Party or to make it harder for people who are likely to vote for Democrats to register and to vote. And in this context, with this new wave of suppressive voting laws, here comes the Supreme Court Giving the green light to states to pass restrictive voting laws, and essentially giving a roadmap to states that want to do so as to what their arguments should be, so that they can overturn a um, uh, 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 overcome a challenge under Section Two. When you when it comes right down to it, the Supreme Court, with this decision, has now taken away the three main tools that plaintiffs used to use to challenge restrictive voting laws. Number one, section two, as we see in the Burnovich case. Number two, section five of the Voting Rights Act, which the court essentially killed in Shelby County. And number three, constitutional litigation under the 14th Amendment. And in 2008, in the Crawford versus Marion County Election Board case, the court made it very difficult to bring those cases as well. And just to add to this, there's one other path that could remain open to challenging restrictive voting laws, which is going back to the pre-City of Mobile versus Bolden days and challenging under Section 2 a voting practice as uh, illegal because it, it is enacted with racially discriminatory intent. This is the theory behind the Department of Justice's lawsuit against Georgia for passing its new voting law. And I think that the complaint was drafted to get around a likely adverse opinion in Brnovich on discriminatory effects. But in Brnovich, near the end of Justice Alito's opinion, Justice Alito says, following up on an earlier case that he wrote an opinion in called Abbott versus Perez, he says, Look, uh, you got to have the whole legislature's got to have a racist intent, and partisan intent is not racist intent. Even if 90% of African American voters vote for Democrats and you discriminate against Democrats, that's not racist intent, he says. And so the fourth possible path to going after um, suppressive voting laws, racial discriminatory intent, has been made more difficult as well. And so read through Justice Kagan's dissent. You see all the kinds of laws that, that um, states can now pass that will not be subject to a Voting Rights uh, Act or other kind of uh, federal lawsuit to try to stop them. It, it's a very depressing time. And it says that the main way to fight suppressive voting laws has to be through political action in the states.
0: Ilya, uh, tell our listeners what you think the effects of the decision will be in terms of challenging uh, future voting laws in the states, and uh, do you agree or disagree with Rick that the court, having narrowed Section 5 and Section 2 of the voting right and constitutional litigation under uh, the 14th Amendment— has now made it extraordinarily hard to prove discriminatory intent by requiring uh, clear evidence of racial intent and saying that partisan intent doesn't count.
1: Well, Jeff, I have good news for both your listeners and for Rick in that it's never been easier to vote in this country for everyone, everywhere. Um, that was certainly true before the pandemic. It's certainly was even more true during the pandemic when we essentially had a free-for-all uh, in, in, in many states, changing rules on the fly, chaos that uh, contributed to the decrease in trust in those results uh, on both the left uh, and the right. And it's certainly true now as states go around trying to regularize and standardize post-pandemic procedures, tweaking here and there, uh, you know, making it transparent how things are going to work, uh, trying to increase uh, that kind of trust. In a cover story in the Washington Examiner called The Voter Suppression Lie, I quote an esteemed election law scholar uh, as talking about New York's abysmal election administration. And if that state were a southern Republican state, there would be protests and calls for businesses to boycott because it's that terrible. But it's a blue state, so you don't see that. That scholar, of course, is uh, Rick Hassan. Uh, And that goes to how um, astroturfy these debates about suppression and fraud really are. We do not have a voting rights crisis in this country. We have a um, voter confidence, a citizen confidence in institutions, in the integrity of elections, in our government, et cetera, et cetera. That's a big problem, Uh, but it has nothing to do with Brnovich section two, section five, voting rights, how states administer their elections. I mean, there's always going to be problems in election administration. Two long lines, ballots not processed in time. You know, we need to change rules so that the absentee ballots, the mailed in ballots get processed as they come in rather than on election night. So we we get them, you know, not the results, not two weeks later, whole host of technocratic issues, but racial disenfranchisement, voter suppression. No, I have good news. That is a myth.
0: Well, it is time for closing arguments in this important, uh, uh, vigorous and uh, illuminating debate. Uh, Rick, the first closing thoughts are to you. Thumb up for our listeners why you believe that the Bernovich decision is not a persuasive interpretation of the text of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and what its
2: impact on American elections will be. Thanks, Jeff, for this opportunity. And I appreciate the vigorous debate with Ilya. I have to say, uh, before I answer your question, that I don't think I uh, could disagree more with his last statement. Uh, both him calling the 2020 election chaos, I think it was a remarkably smooth, clean, and well-run election under very difficult conditions of a pandemic, as well as his claim that voting is easier everywhere. Uh, This is not true. How easy it is to vote depends on where you live and often depends on your political party affiliation or the color of your skin. In many places, voting is getting easier. In other places, voting is getting harder, and it's getting harder not for a good reason but because there is an attempt to deliberately suppress the vote. Bernovich is, uh, I think, very much in line with the um, comments of Ilya. It's a belief that racial discrimination in voting is a thing of the past. And uh, I hearken back to Justice Ginsburg's dissent in the 2013 case of Shelby County versus Holder. In that case, uh, Justice Ginsburg talked about how throwing out preclearance because you don't see lots of intentional discrimination is like getting rid of your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. And uh, Justice Ginsburg was right. As soon as the Supreme Court passed, uh, as soon as the Supreme Court decided uh, Shelby County, uh, Texas went to, in, within two hours, to enforcing its, its voter ID law, the strictest in the nation. Within weeks, Uh, North Carolina passed the most restrictive set of voting rules that the country has seen since the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which the um, Fourth Circuit called targeted at African American voters with almost surgical precision. We were assured when the Supreme Court decided Shelby County, don't worry about the loss of Section 5 and preclearance because there's always Section 2 to protect voting rights. What the Supreme Court has done in Brnovich is shown us that section two is now a hollow protection for voting rights. Voting rights in this country is something that people died for throughout American history. And the Voting Rights Act took the struggle of African-American voters and their allies in the South, many uh, uh, dealing with violence and, and even death. And the thought that the Supreme Court has taken this crown jewel of the, of the civil rights movement and made it into an empty letter is both depressing and uh, uh, dangerous for American democracy. Uh, I can't think of a worse decision in voting that the Supreme Court has decided, uh, other than the Shelby County case, which essentially killed off the other major provision of the voting rights. Act. Thank you very much
0: for that. Ilya, the last word is to you. Uh, Tell We the People listeners why you think that the Brnovich decision is a... Convincing interpretation of section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and what its implications will be for the future of American elections
1: Well, as I said in my brief, I would have preferred a clearer rule. I I always uh, uh, Am wary of multi-factor balancing tests whether they come off the pen of Justice Alito Justice Breyer or anybody else Uh, But I think this does clarify things and give states uh, some assurance that something that's constitutional one day won't be unconstitutional the next day, depending on the the random panel assignment in your particular circuit. Um, Justice Ginsburg used the wrong analogy. Uh, Ending Section 5, disabling it, uh, is not throwing out your umbrella when it's uh, because you're not getting wet. It's ending chemotherapy when the cancer is eradicated. And that cancer is systemic racial disenfranchisement. We have problems. We're not perfect, but Section 2 still exists uh, to deal with actual uh, uh, vote denial uh, based on race. Uh, And it's still there, uh, uh, whether that's uh, voter ID, whether that's uh, taking away the the equal opportunity to. uh, Uh, to vote fundamentally. That's the main point. Our uh, uh, rate of voting has only increased as these so-called restrictions have gone in, just like rates of voting uh, in the the states, in the post-Shelby states with these so-called restrictions have increased with rates of uh, racial minorities increasing by more than uh, those of, of whites. So again, this is all uh, very unfortunate. The calls of systemic fraud uh, on the right are unfortunate. The calls of systemic suppression on the left are un- unfortunate. Uh, all they do is decrease the level of institutional trust, uh, decrease the confidence in the integrity of elections and ultimately contribute to the increasing polarization, partisanship and division in this country. I really wish Rick and I weren't debating this because I don't think there's a debate here.
0: Thank you so much, Rick Hassan and Ilya Shapiro for a vigorous, uh, a a serious, and a civil debate about uh, the meaning of section two of the Voting Rights Act and the future of American elections. Rick, Ilya, thank you so much for joining.
1: Thanks, Jeff.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Today's show was engineered and produced by Jackie McDermott with editing by the National Constitution Center's AV team. Research was provided by Mac Taylor, Olivia Gross, and Lana Ulrich. Homework of the week, We the People friends read the Brnovich decision, the majority opinion and the dissent, and make up your own minds. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is eager for a weekly dose of vigorous constitutional debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. Thanks so much to those of you who've been joining at $1, $5. It's so meaningful to have your engagement and support. Uh, A donation of any amount is much appreciated. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, and that's constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. Thank you, We the People friends. Hope you all had a good 4th of July weekend. And on behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.